Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone. And today we are in week 18 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. Today we're going to be looking at several questions, number 44 all the way through 49. And this week we are talking about the ascension of Jesus. Now that might be a word we're not all that familiar with, But when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we generally refer to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then his ascension. The word ascend means to rise up or to go up, which is exactly what Jesus did while his disciples watched on. You can read about this in Luke chapter 24, but you can also read about this in Acts chapter 1. Here's what it says, Acts 1, 9, And when he had said these things... As they were looking on, he was lifted up. So Jesus had been teaching the disciples. They were all there with him. And as this was taking place, as he had said these things, they looked on at him and he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it recounts for us the act of Christ's ascension, the act of Christ rising up into the air, into the heavens. It records for us the moment in time when he went to be with the Father. But the ascension of Jesus means more than simply that he rose up. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, we learn that when Jesus ascended, he was actually receiving something. He was receiving the reward of his completed mission. The ascension of Christ marks the highest point of the Son of God's exaltation. As he ascends into heaven to the right hand of God, he is entering into the glory that he has earned. And we read about this in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. It says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then being found in this human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that's the first part of the gospel. Jesus came to earth. He lived a righteous life. He died a sacrificial death on the cross. And then in verse 9, it says, Therefore God, because he has accomplished this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him, gifted to him, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's important for us to understand that in Jesus' ascension, he is receiving this exaltation. He is having bestowed upon him the kingly name that is above every name. He is being granted by the Father this glory that he has earned through his sacrifice. And, and that's what he's receiving in the ascension. Ascension is, is so much more than simply the way he ended his earthly ministry. It was also the point when he received the reward for his suffering from God the Father. Okay, so now that we have a basic biblical understanding of the fact that ascension means his rising up into heaven and his ascension entails him receiving the benefits and the blessing from the Father for completing his mission, 
Now let's look a little bit closer at this whole idea of ascension. And let's ask some questions. Let's work through the, the Heidelberg questions, uh, starting in verse uh, number 44. Now, what do you mean by saying he ascended into heaven? That's the question. And here's the answer. That Christ, while his disciples watch, was lifted up from the earth to heaven and will be there for our good until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. No mystery where this comes from, right? I just read about that from Acts chapter 1. But as I stated, there is so much more that needs to be considered than the basic fact that his ascension occurred. And the next question, question 47, gets at this. So question 47, but isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised? And the answer is this. Christ is truly human and truly God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth, but in his divine majesty, grace, and spirit, he is not absent from us at this moment. Okay, now this is a great question. If Christ is physically not on the world any longer, does that mean that his promise to never leave us nor forsake us is, is null and void? I mean, maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you have never thought about this. Jesus promised his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He promised that he would be with us until the very end of the age. And then just a, a few verses later, he left and he ascended to heaven. So how do we how do we understand the apparent contradiction of his promise to stay followed by his very prompt leaving? Well, the way that we answer this question is going to get into the theological weeds a little bit, but that's okay. That's the way it needs to be. We understand that Jesus has two natures, one divine, one human. He is the God-man. And while it is true that his human nature is no longer present on earth, his divine spirit is present. And Jesus actually prepped his disciples for this to happen. He told them that it was going to happen, and he told them that it would be better if it happened. He said it would be better on the whole when he was gone preparing a place for us, and the Holy Spirit, the Helper, had come dwelling in our hearts and being present with us until the end. Now, Jesus taught his disciples about this in John chapter 14 through 16. And I just want to read from John chapter 16 and verse 7, where Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus' physical absence doesn't mean that we are without the comforting, abiding, and guiding presence of God. The Spirit of God is with us. The Spirit dwells within every true believer, and the Spirit testifies to us about Jesus. Jesus says this in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So, what this means is that while Jesus, the second person of our triune God, is not physically present with us on earth at this time, his spirit, which testifies about him, which came from the Father, is very much present with us right now and will be until the very end of the age. Okay, next question. Question 48. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Now, this is a really interesting question, and it's a question that gets to some theological debates that have been had over the, 
the centuries, actually over the last couple thousand years, about how do we understand these two natures of Christ and, and how do we understand that they are inseparable from one another. Um, now, I won't get into all the Latin phrases, but here's the answer to the, the catechism's question. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? The answer is certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity he has taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. Okay, so just, just so we're clear, when Heidelberg mentions the divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is not referring to Jesus' humanity. It's, it's looking at those two natures in, uh, in, in their respective spheres. Jesus is a person with a resurrected body that is physical and that is, in some capacity, subject to the laws of space and time, meaning we have no evidence of the physical body of Jesus being in two places at once. But the fact that he is part of our triune God means that he is at the same time beyond the bounds of those laws because he created them. The answer to how Jesus can be in heaven and at the same time dwelling in the hearts of his people, honestly, it lies within the mystery of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans and, and other places throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, you, however, talking to believers, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So this language is being used interchangeable. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. We're talking about the Holy Spirit here. And, and where the Spirit is, our understanding is that there Christ is also. The unique unity of the Godhead is such that though they are distinct persons, they are still one. They are united in their divine essence and purpose. So while Christ's physical body is not present with us on earth at this time, his spirit is very much present with us at this time. Okay, last question, and this one's a three-part answer. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? What does it mean that he's there? And how will that benefit us? Number one, first, he pleads our case in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven, a guarantee that Christ our head will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. And third, he sends his Spirit to us on earth as a further guarantee. By the Spirit's power, we make the goal of our lives not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. So Heidelberg breaks this answer up into three parts. Um, and we'll, we'll do the same thing. The first way that Christ's ascension benefits us is that Jesus is right now an advocate for us in the Father's ear. And the fact that he's an advocate for us, it means that he is praying for us. He is pleading for us. He is defending us before God. You can think about it this way. Where Satan is ever the accuser of the brethren, Jesus sits at God's right hand, that's the biblical language, and he has our back. Where Satan accuses, Jesus pleads for us. Where Satan um, tries to create problems for us, Jesus is advocating on our behalf. 
So that's the first way that his ascension benefits us. He is at the right hand of the Father, and as our advocate, as the intermediary between God and man, he is pleading our case before the Father. The second way that Christ's ascension benefits us is that Jesus represents humanity within the confines of divine space. One Scottish preacher has said, the dust of earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. And in this, basically what we're saying is that there, there is a, a, a representative of humanity in the Father's presence right now. And in this, we have a sure pledge, a promise that Christ will one day bring the rest of us, the rest of humanity, with him to heaven. So heaven has humanity dwelling in it, in the perfect humanity of the Son of God. And one day, the rest of humanity will be there as well. But how? And that's where the third question comes in. The third way the ascension of Christ benefits us is that we have the Spirit dwelling in us as a down payment of what is yet to come. The Holy Spirit was not given to us in the fullness of His power. The day is coming when we will be changed by the power of God's Spirit to be transformed from a state of imperfection to a state of perfection. And when that day comes, we will then be fit to come into the presence of God alongside Jesus. Right now, our imperfection can't come into the presence of God. But on that day, when we are made new, when we, we put on immortality, as John tell, uh, Paul tells us in um, 1 Corinthians 15, when we put on immortality by the power of the Spirit of God, we will then be able to come into the presence of the Father. Just as Jesus was able, after his ascension, to come into the presence of the Father, so we too who believe will one day be made able to come into the presence of the Father. Until then... We have the Spirit in us who serves as a promise, a down payment, that looks forward to that great day that is to come. And since our Savior King is in heaven pleading for us, and since a representative for humanity is in heaven guaranteeing our own entry, and since the Spirit of God is in us now awaiting the day of final redemption, the, the catechism ends by saying we ought to live as people on a journey toward heaven. We ought to set our minds on things above. We ought to make it the goal of our lives to be heavenly minded. We should be faithful to Christ till the end while knowing that when the end comes, it will be far better than even our best life now. So thanks for joining me today in discussion of the Heidelberg Catechism. And I hope you'll come back and join me again next week as we look at Lord's Day 19 together and discuss questions 50, 51, and 52. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBCWiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.